is Thursday night, or as my guest last week said, or not last week, the last guest I had, he said it's Thor's day, uh, which means it's the day of Thor. Anyways, I uh, hope Jake's doing good. I see him a lot on Twitter now. He's a good dude. Anyways, it's Thursday night, which means I have a fantastic guest lined up for you all tonight. Actually, I should say Miss Susie Q has a guest lined up for you all tonight. I don't do much anymore. I just show up and talk shit online now. It's great. I love it. Anyways, um, got to do the everything because that keeps the lights on. And by lights on, I mean metaphorical lights because I still work a job. So here we go. You can find us on all these platforms, Facebook, Twitch, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Twitter, Anchor, and Spotify. We live stream on four of them. If you don't know which four, you suck, and uh, your parents don't love you. Uh, Libertarian Party Veterans Caucus, leading libertarians to veteran issues, leading veterans to libertarian solutions. Because, you know, who knows more about government abuse than the guys and girls who were abused by the government for years for really shitty pay? Unless you're an officer, and in which case, you know, you're the shitty abuser. James Tarrier for Kentucky. That's T-O-L-L-E-R, the number four, KY.com. It's people over politics, people helping people, because what is politics if it's not about the people? I'll tell you what it is. It's the U.S. Congress right now. It is not for the people. It is neither representative of the people. So you know what? Also, fun stat, Nickelback has a higher approval rating in the United States than Congress does. So suck it. If you hate Nickelback, guess what? You probably like Congress. I don't know if that's true, but I'm, I'm going to say it is. Uh, Chris Byer for Alaska's congressman. Go to www.istimealaska.com because there's one singular congressional house seat in Alaska. And guess what? Chris Byer wants that seat. You know why? Because Chris Byer is a good dude. He cares. He wants to make sure Alaska stays free and all of Americans stay free. So go help the man out at istimealaska.com. Also, breaking news, if you haven't seen it on the Facebook or the Twitter yet, we have not one, not two, not three, but four brand new t-shirt designs that are hitting the store. As of right now, it's there. Go copy one of these things. They are fan-freaking-tastic. The guy over at um, Proud Libertarian does amazing work. We've been working with him on trying to get these designs finished up, and he killed it. So let me show you a few of them here. So this is the uh, Band Exorcisms Life Begins at Possession shirt. Amazing. Uh, we've also got Band Assault Government. I mean, the only dangerous assault weapon is government itself. We've got uh, the Libertarian Party hashtag Anarchy Loop shirt. And another Band Exorcisms Life Begins at Possession. It's uh, They're pretty amazing. I mean, what more do you want from life? Electmanlybrunner.com. If you want one of those shirts, go to narrowpodcast.com, hit the shop button. Redemptiontactical.com. That link will be in the comments. That's our link that lets them know that we sent you. Get you a ballistic face mask. Because you know what? Everybody everybody has plate carriers. But can you say that, you know, your friend group has a ballistic face mask? No, you can't. Be the only one. Be different. Current for current.com slash donate. Uh, hashtag Chris for AK. It's timealaska.com. Proud Libertarian makes all of our merch. They're amazing. Uh, LPVest.com. Hashtag Anarchy Lou. If you don't know, you don't know. Uh, Facebook.com slash DK for Senate. And then we've got Nick Sawall. And we've got Will for OK. Will is OK. Who's not? <laughs> 
Also, you can follow uh, Miss Christine Womack on the Twitters, or not the Twitters, but the TikToks at Ollie's Mom 2014. If you are super into PTA arguments over playground equipment, that is the TikTok count for you. Anyways, enough of that. I have a fan freaking fantastic guest for y'all tonight. His name is Thomas Gallagher. And he, as I was telling him before the show, is a very rare bird for this show. He is a defense attorney who uh, helped start, or I guess founded the Minnesota uh, chapter of Normal, which, if you don't know, is the organization that helped pretty much spark the pro-legalization of weed or marijuana movement in the United States. Um, I mean, he's an awesome dude. Super, super smart dude. Uh, And I'll let you see it for yourself, uh, Mr. Tom Gallagher. Hey, how's it going? How you doing, my man? I didn't actually found Minnesota Normal, but I was one of the founding board members. Just, but um, yeah, we were. I had it right the first time, then. We're working to legalize marijuana in Minnesota. But yeah, so the organization as a whole, like the different chapters, work I guess sort of together. But that's the the goal is legalization at weed, correct? Yeah, that's all of the that's the goal of all the chapters. The there's a national normal in Washington D.C. was the original, and now there are local or affiliate chapters all over the country, all over the the world, actually. Sweet. So I guess we'll uh, we'll, we'll we'll pivot into that a little bit. Um, so weed legalization as a defense attorney, I guess, in a, in a financial standpoint, would actually be kind of counterproductive to your business model. I mean, you, you I, I guess in a way you would technically want more people to commit crimes so you have more work. But, I mean, to you, I guess, the legalization of weed is a, is a rights-based thing? Is that kind of what the... Yes, I think... There's more than one layer to it or level to it. Um, I think that some, sometimes I've explained it with a with a metaphor. Like, let's imagine you're like the a doctor in the town emergency room, and you keep seeing uh, the ambulance bring kids in who fell off a cliff on the edge of town, where kids like to hang out and drink beer mm-hmm. away from their parents. And they keep coming in every week. There's another kid who fell off the cliff. So, you know, they're not, the town isn't doing anything. So, you know, maybe you go out there and you try to build a little fence so the kids don't fall off the edge of the cliff when they're drunk. Or maybe you try to get the town to do it. But nobody else is aware of it except you. Other people are like, wow, we don't know why that kid got hurt. The kid isn't bragging about getting drunk and falling off a cliff. But you know, because you're the doctor, so... I mean, I'm in the trenches. I'm a criminal defense attorney. I see the damage firsthand. I deal with people in a very personal way. You know, the attorney-client relationship, it's very personal. And you're, you, you really do identify with your client quite a bit. And it's really just, it's hard to take somebody's life being ruined over a plant. So... You know, you could do something about it or maybe just stick, stay in your lane. But, uh, you know, I've been political all my life. So 
why not get involved and try to change the laws so that we don't, so people don't need a lawyer. Now, a lot of states, we do have uh, adult use marijuana legal, and even more states, we have at least medical legal. Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess your analogy makes sense in a, in a lot of ways. The simple fact that, you know, uh, defense attorneys are supposed to be representing their clients, and what's the best way to represent their clients is to make sure that they're not being punished for something as minor as, you know, weed possession, um, which, as we've seen time and time again, a lot of times can lead into escalated things, not from them necessarily, but from either the legislation or from um, – the, the few bad cops that are out there that think that, you know, they're, they're getting some hardened criminal off the street because some 18 year old kid was caught with a little bag of weed because he wanted to go party that night. Um, and I mean, there, there's, we can get that would dive really deep into, you know, like the, the, the real cost of, you know, illegal weed because, you know, now people are having to go out and buy it versus, you know, or buy it from irreputable sources and, you know, they're sneaking it out to different places or whatever. And, you know, maybe they end up getting high and driving. Uh, and that's that's all a result of illegal weed. As we've seen is when it becomes legalized, people are smarter with it. They're safer with it because now they're like, oh, I can just smoke it at home. I can go buy it, smoke it at home and just hang out. And nobody bats an eye. But where, you know, we see a lot of the, the carryover from alcohol prohibition, that behavior into the marijuana prohibition because people are afraid of getting busted. So are you seeing like a lot of those those parallels where um, like they're getting these tacked on charges, which are absolute horse shit because, you know, cops know that um, weed legalization is coming in a lot of states. So the prosecution is looking to tack something else on so they can maybe get some time or at least a bigger fine or something like that. Well, I mean, I think marijuana is kind of unique when it comes to illegal drugs because you know, coffee is a drug. And uh, one difference between coffee and marijuana is you can overdose and die on coffee, but you cannot overdose and die on marijuana. So caffeine is a, is a drug that is capable of killing a person who takes too much caffeine. Actually, usually it's uh, energy drinks, not coffee, but it's the active ingredient. So, um, but marijuana, you could use all the THC you could ever find and you'd never drop dead from it. You just, you know, you might get really hungry or get tired or something. Um, so it's not a very dangerous drug compared to coffee, for example, or alcohol or, or other drugs. But so most people have some, most, many people don't have the full understanding like I just uh, described, but most people have a general understanding that marijuana is not as bad as other drugs. And so, yes, it's illegal in many places still, but, you know, the police officers that I've, that I know, that I've talked to, they basically, they really, most, most rank and file police officers, they're not really worried about marijuana that much for small amounts of marijuana. They may think that um, people who are um, growing or distributing or, or selling marijuana may be somehow uh, worse, and that's a common attitude in public, in the public too, where it's illegal. But um, many times, for people with small amounts, police sometimes they just use their discretion as a police officer and just let the guy go and don't even arrest him. Depends where you are, probably, but in many places. So you know, one thing that it kind of uh, 
like, like you were getting at there, one thing that that reminds me of is in Minnesota, if you have uh, two ounces of marijuana, that's a felony amount. So in Minnesota, under an ounce and a half is is not a not a crime. It's a petty misdemeanor um, if it's plant form marijuana. But if you have two ounces, that's a felony. Now, if you commit a felony drug crime and you have a gun on you, now you've got a minimum in Minnesota of three years in prison. So if you had a gun and you didn't have marijuana, you wouldn't go to prison. If um, if you had the marijuana no gun, you wouldn't go to prison. Oops, you got marijuana and a gun. Here's your prison cell. Yeah. So that's that's kind of kind of crazy, I think. Kind of wrong. So I guess I'll ask this, um, just as someone who might have the insight into this, why is there an arbitrary number? Like why is it why is it two? Why is it not three? Why is it not four? Why is it that specific number? Or is it just like they're like, eh, two is too much? Well, you know, I think that um if you look at the federal drug crime statutes. And then you look at, at least I'm familiar with my own state, Minnesota, but I'm sure it's similar in most states. Um, the, the, what they do, the, the criminal drug laws, they have certain things that are generally um, used to make it a, a more serious crime with a bigger penalty or a smaller crime with a smaller penalty. So one of those is the type of drug, which I kind of alluded to already. So Cocaine would have a bigger penalty than marijuana for the same quantity. Another one would be quantity. So a greater amount would have a bigger penalty than a smaller amount. Another one would be sale uh, versus possession, for example. So they're going to treat sale more harshly, even though it's the same quantity. So there's uh, in Minnesota, we have weight thresholds. So there's weight ranges. If you're in this range, it's this level of felony. If it's a bigger amount, it's this other level of felony. So um, it's kind of arbitrary. So as a criminal defense attorney, if I have a case that's close to the threshold, then I can argue that the weight isn't accurate. You know, like usually in, in these cases, we have what I call a police way or a cop way. And then we have a laboratory way. The cop ways are usually not very accurate. And sometimes I had one, I had a case a year and a half ago where um, the cop way was actually like 12 times greater than the laboratory way. That was kind of an extreme case. Usually they're like five or 10% higher than the laboratory ways later on. Laboratory ways, I trust them. They're, they're usually accurate, although they might not always be accurate, but in gen most of the time they are. Cop ways are just kind of, uh, you know, the cop just puts it on a scale in a police station and they put something down, whatever they see. Um, so the quantities, yeah. yeah, sometimes it, it feels kind of arbitrary for close to that threshold. But if sometimes if you're, if you got a case where you're, you know, uh, in Minnesota, uh, an ounce and a half up to 10 kilos is the range for a fifth degree felony possession case. So, you know, if you've got five kilos, um, no point in arguing about, is it an accurate weight? Because it's not, it's not close to an ounce and a half and it's not close to 10. So it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of hard to mix that one up. It's, it's like yeah. five kilos an ounce. Because mm. if it turned out to be five and a half or seven, who cares? You know, it just, it's not going to help you. Yeah. I guess I guess the reason uh, copways would be uh, probably pretty inaccurate is 
you know, who knows when the last time the scale was calibrated, right? Like a lab, you would think, you know, they would need that scale to be continuously calibrated. So they'll calibrate it probably once a day. And scientists, like all the scientists I know, they're super meticulous about that stuff. Like they're very anal. So they, they would they would calibrate their scale on a regular basis. Cops, I mean, and I, typically, you know, when they, when they weigh something on site too, like that scale that they may have is probably thrown in the trunk with a bunch of other gear that gets knocked around and beat to hell. And who knows when or if ever that thing was calibrated. So, yeah, I guess that would make sense. I mean, that's definitely a good argument. I mean, I love that. Another related issue is um, the pre uh, preliminary drug testing or drug screening tests. There's a there's a proprietary uh, test called the NIC test, N-I-K test. It's a it's a common one, at least around here. And it's it's a solution. The cop breaks off a little chunk of whatever the suspected drug is, mm -hmm. and they put it in the solution. There's different ones for different types of dr suspected drugs. If it turns the right color, oh yep, it really it is um, marijuana or whatever else it might be. So um, in Minnesota, hemp is legal, and a lot. I think every probably well federally it's legal now. I don't know if every state has legalized hemp. I'm guessing maybe they have, but um, so we got a problem now because the screening test it just shows that traditionally it would just show the presence of THC. Well, guess what? Hemp has THC in it, but it's legal everywhere, pretty much. So at least in Minnesota it is. So. Um, that test isn't very good anymore. So there's all kinds of problems that have come up because of hemp being legal and also because of medical marijuana. So, and that's part of the reason that some law enforcement organizations opposed hemp being legal and medical marijuana because it would make it harder for them to enforce the criminal marijuana laws. And it, and it, it has a little bit. Yeah. And I think the other thing is too, is like a lot of States um, have legalized or not even necessarily legalized, but there was a loophole uh, where Delta 8 THC is legal, but because I think it's Delta 9 is the the one that's actually illegal, which is the one that you get in natural marijuana, which Delta 8 is a synthetic mar uh, synthetic THC. Um, like, I guess I, I, I'm not super versed on all that kind of stuff. I actually do use uh, Delta 8 personally for, uh, for chronic knee pain that I have. Yeah, um, I, I, I used... Good. Sorry, I was going to jump on you there. Sorry about that. Well, no, I, mean, I mean, Delta 8, I wouldn't, as far my understanding is Delta 8 is not synthetic. It's actually hemp. And that's why the federal court, like maybe a little less than a year ago, ruled that it was legal because it was a hemp product. And it was not, the argument on the other side was that it was highly processed. So it was no longer really a hemp product because there was a, a more complicated process to extract it. However, the court, I believe, ruled that, nope, it's hemp because they extracted it from hemp. And we don't care how much they processed it. So it's a natural component of hemp. They have to use a heck of a lot of hemp to get a kind of a small amount of product, but that's kind of a hemp problem in general for CBD as well. It's the same situation with CBD, which, I mean, I know about you, I go to Whole Foods and there's CBD at the checkout counter now. With, which has THC in it, by the way. Yeah, so I think CBD, uh, my understanding, CBD is basically like it won't give you the high or the buzz, but Delta right. 8 will. Um, right. But like CBD is supposed to have all the same properties of like 
you know, pain relief and stuff like that. For me, it's kind of ended up feeling like ibuprofen, but for a lot of people, they have amazing results for it, so it's great. And I do like the fact that the court said it doesn't matter how much it's processed, it's still technically hemp, because McDonald's every single day is allowed to sell hamburgers with highly processed meat, and they're allowed to call it meat. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. I'm just saying. True story. (laughs) Yeah. Look. Like as someone who loves some McDonald's, and I mean, guilty of it, but cause, I mean it's cheap. But I mean, it's not real meat. Let's not fool ourselves. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, um, kind of, I guess we'll pivot from the weed thing into another topic here. Um, so you and I, I don't want to. I don't like affiliating people with parties because i think collectivism is a horrible terrible idea and it gives people bad names because now you're tied in with everyone else but you are technically registered as a republican correct but you're from my understanding you're more of like a ron paul republican someone who sees liberty belongs to the people and not to our lord and savior donald trump well there's a lot there but in Minnesota, we don't have to register as anything, so I'm not actually registered as anything. But I'm a I'm a party officer of the Minnesota Republican Party, so I think that that's enough to tell the story right there. But um, so I I call myself a Liberty Republican or a Libertarian with a small L. So yeah, I'm a I'm a Ron. I came into the party because of Ron Paul. That is the that is. That's he is the person who got me to become a Republican and to caucus for him. And I stuck around. And, you know, I mean, I, I have a lot of friends who are in the Minnesota Libertarian Party and they're doing great work. And I'm going to a rally that they're organizing on Saturday, uh, a couple of days from now. Um, it's going to be a lot of fun to connect with everybody from the Minnesota Libertarian Party. But they're trying to reach out to a lot of people. And they're, they're I think they are trying to do political organizing, which I think involves reaching out to people that don't already agree with you. You know, you have to engage with people who are not true believers. It's tempting to hang out with the true believers and, you know, uh, tell each other what you like to hear. But we really need to engage with people that don't agree with us or maybe they might be interested if we were to um, communicate effectively with them about what our, our, our ideas are. Have you uh, have you met Travis Johnson? He goes by Travis Bull Johnson too. Some. I don't think I've met him in person yet. I mean, we I think we're connected online, but I think I'm going to meet him on Saturday, probably. Travis, I love Travis to death. He is wild. He is a he is a classic cattle rancher. He is an awesome dude. Uh, but I wish you luck. I, I love to meet him in person, but I wish you luck when you meet him in person. He's he's an awesome dude. He's funny as all hell too. He's uh he's wild. But um, yeah, so I definitely agree with the fact that we have to step out of our circles. I love um, encompassing myself and people that don't agree. And, I, you know, I like because here's, here's the thing. You can't formulate your own argument if it's just agreeing with people, right? Like the, the circle, you know, if you if you build your circle around people that that agree with you, you'll never learn to have a discussion because all you'll do is just agree on everything and be done. Um, but. At the end of the day, 
it is kind of nice to step into the circles where you agree just to just to unwind and hear yourself. But yeah, I mean, if you want to get better at speaking to people, if you want to get better at developing your argument, if you want to get better at developing conversations with people, and here's the big thing too, learning how to keep your, like keep a cool head when someone disagrees with you, even if they get aggressive with it, learning to keep a cool head is so monumental because as soon as the first person starts screaming and getting loud and the other person does it the same, nobody gives a shit with either one of you say. If you can keep a calm and collected head and still have a good argument and good discussion, I'm not going to say you you win, but you don't look like the crazy person in the discussion either. So that's that's always a huge thing. So I'm, that that's very true. I mean, I remember uh, when I was young and I got involved in political party politics and I wasn't that, you know, hadn't been at it very long. And I ran into an older guy and he said to me, Tom, if somebody in the party is mad at you, let them yell at you and just sit there or stand there and look them in the eye and listen and, and, and nod every now and then and don't say anything. And let them, let them yell at you as long as they want until they're done. And if you do that, they'll be half as mad at you after that. So I've got a, I've got a question from the comments here. Um, it says, Tom, you describe yourself as a liberty issues activist. What are your top three liberty issues you've spent the most time on thus far? Like the top two are really easy to come up with. Um, one we've been talking about already, which is marijuana legalization. The other one is guns, Second Amendment, um, self-defense. So that kind of dovetails into my job because there's political aspects and then there's also, for me, there's work aspects because I have cases where I'm defending people who are accused of a gun crime. Um, so gun rights, marijuana legalization, gun rights. And then the third one, I'd have to struggle a little bit, but I think just generally, um, The idea of liberty, the idea of liberty um, and the importance of liberty in the American culture and in, in the human experience. And uh, I'm I, mo a lot of lawyers are historically oriented and I'm no exception to that. And I've been studying uh, lately, although I have for a long time, natural law, which stretches back quite a bit, hundreds of years, if not longer. And also something that's a little different called common law, which has multiple different meanings in, in a historical context. But uh, so basically, maybe I would say my third would be the underpinnings of liberty. Hmm. I'm, so I'm not really versed in common law. The only thing I know about common law is I've heard of common law partnerships or common law marriage where basically states will say hey you've been together for so long you don't need to legally get married but you still have the same right as a couple who is married because you've been together this long proving to us that you have a mature relationship which is horseshit in itself because what's the government to determine what a good relationship is when the only relationship the u.s has with anyone else is violence so yeah i think that common law marriage is actually been it, it was outlawed in Minnesota. I, I think in a lot of states they've outlawed it. Um, I think it was around the 1900 range in there. Um, I think that's 
that kind of could, it would be easy to digress into a discussion of marriage and the government. And some people like me feel like maybe the government doesn't need to be involved in everything that people do, like marriage. Um, so common law marriage would be marriage without the government being involved. So there's kind of a libertarian uh, spin on that, but I'm trying to resist the temptation to go there. But um, common, it does reference the common law. Common law marriage is referencing the common law. So the common law that they're referencing there or in that term would be the common law of England, which was adopted by the United States after the revolution. And um, the, the, the American legal system is considered a common law legal system as opposed to a code legal system like France, um, which is stat based on statute. If it's not in the statute, if it's not written down, then it's not the law. The common law system was kind of a populist system, which arguably is saying that the law comes from the people, from the jury. So the, the jury just, whatever people think is right and customary, that's the law. We all know what it is. It doesn't have to be written down. And it's kind of whatever the jury says it is. So the, the back, back in, in maybe 100 years ago or more, a lot of people, some people didn't like that. And they thought, well, no, we got to write everything down. We have to get rid of the common law entirely. We have to put everything in statutes. But we haven't really gotten rid of it because we still have judicially made law. So court decisions still have the force of law. And that's sort of a, a type of common law. The common law of England was largely in the form of judicial opinions. But the judicial opinions were basically repeating what the people in the jury thought was right. So um, some might say today that, oh, that's uh, judicial activism, which we think is a terrible thing. Um, I would say, no, it's not. It's more related to the power of the people and the jury. Um, and something related to that would be jury nullification, which um, is a topic I'm real interested in. I did an online uh, seminar a couple of weeks or a month ago with the fully informed jury association. I was getting ready that. to ask you what your opinion on jury nullification was. And you've already, you've already touched on it. Cause uh, so, uh, so the, the amount that you do know about jury nullification, what, what, what's your kind of opinion on it? I mean, I, I assume as a defense attorney, you would be in favor of it. But, you know, I'll let you kind of give it in your own words. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the really interesting things about jury nullification is, um, well, there's a few few interesting things, but one I've, I've observed, and I think I'm not the only one, but in the United the history of the United States over a couple hundred plus years, um, we've had the rise and fall of populism, you could say, or people power. Mm -hmm. So... There are times when the people have been more powerful, more running the show. Then there are other times where the elites, the rich people, the educated people, or whatever the criteria is for the elites, they've been running the show. And the, the normal 99% of the population are uh, being ruled by them. They're like kind of like the overlords of the society, you know? So... That's how I would describe populism, which is it's risen and it's fallen. And I would say after World War II, it, it, it fell. So before World War II in the United States, we had a lot of jury nullification. We had statutes. We had jury instructions. The judges would tell the jurors, you know, you have the right to 
bring in a not guilty verdict regardless of the facts or the other law. So, um, but after World War II, I think their populism got a bad name or the elites were able to take over perhaps because of the war and war gives the elites a lot of power. They scare people and when people are frightened, they're more willing to give up their rights. And so um, the jury became defanged. I mean, the jury used to have a lot of teeth. After World War II, the jury became kind of uh, a shadow of what it once was. So the judge became like the Roman censor who's allowing evidence to come in or not come in. And then the jury's just, you know, they're deciding the case based on what they're being told, but they're not being they're not being told the whole truth. They're just being told what they're allowed to know. And so as the computer software people say, garbage in, garbage out, you know, you put garbage into a trial, garbage evidence, you don't allow them to know the truth, garbage out. I'll give you a quick example of that. So when I had it in Minnesota, the appellate courts ruled that, um, that, a, a cancer patient who's using medical marijuana, who's charged with a marijuana crime, is not allowed to tell the jury that they're using marijuana as a necessity to uh, treat their cancer. That the, the defense defendant can't say it and the defense attorney can't say it. And if we do, they can throw us in jail. So uh, my question is, how is that a fair trial? You know, that's not right. So that's just an example of how um, the jury, I mean, that the juries in those cases where they haven't been allowed, I don't blame the jurors because they didn't have a chance. They didn't know. They were deprived yeah. of the opportunity to know what was really going on. So I guess, I mean, so yeah, so, you know, as we all know, jury duty is your bylaw required to show up for jury duty, whether you end up on a trial or not. I think there's like a, what is it, a fine if you don't show up or whatever. A lot of people will just pay the fine, like, I don't want to deal with this, whatever, blah, blah. But, you know, these are people that are randomly selected um, or supposedly randomly selected, and they show up for these trials not knowing what the trial is going to be, what it is. You know, it could be, a you know, a one-day thing for, you know, uh, breaking it in or a battery or whatever case. Um, and then sometimes they end up, you know, being a, a juror on a, a, a case where it's nationally broadcasted, like we've seen with the the, uh, the officer from the George Floyd trials. Um, and so my, I guess my question um, would be, what do you think, uh, if any, do you think there's any sway to the jury when, when some of these bigger cases take place? I mean, because you got to think, like, these are, these are regular people, right? Like, they're, they're scared to death of coming out with the wrong verdict. And they're being ostracized by their peers and all this because, you know, these jurors are not like they're not really protected. Their identities are not protected. Their faces are on TV. And, you know, I guess there's a what a public list of the jurors on each trial. And so, I mean, these people can I can see it being easily scared into a verdict one way or the other. Do you think a lot of that takes place? Yes or no? And kind of why? Well, I mean, in high high profile jury trials, they do sometimes hide the identity of the jurors. At least in Minnesota, they do. I believe in other states, they do sometimes. Um, but um, I think that you know the 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 criminal justice system has developed over a long period of time, and 
a lot of things about it are designed to intimidate people. Or if they're not designed to do it, they have that effect, or maybe both. Um, so people get intimidated. But I think what we need is we need people to feel like, you know, when I go to the courthouse, this is my house. I'm not a stranger here. I'm not a slave here. This is my this is my city. This is my town. And, you know, I'm going to be respectful of other people, but I own this. This is mine. People shouldn't feel intimidated, but they do a lot. So that's a big problem. We need to figure out how to fix that. But um, it's important to know, though, on a jury, if there's a jury of 12 for a felony case, if one person or more refuses to convict, there's not going to be a conviction. So um, a jur one person on a jury has a lot of power. It's extremely powerful. And they, they can't make you agree with them, although there have been sometimes the jurors, they go back in the del deliberation room, they can say whatever the heck they want, and none of us really know what's going on in there unless they re somebody reports about it later, which, but usually that doesn't happen. So th there's probably a lot of co arm twisting that goes on, at least either hopefully metaphorically and not actual arm twisting, but because um, people want to go home and the judge doesn't want to let them go home until they mm -hmm. agree, you know, but if you don't agree, there's not going to be a conviction. And then if the jury, um, the jury can nullify the law too. the jury can say not guilty, unanimously not guilty. And another interesting thing about jury nullification is that um, what the judges in the court decision say is, um, well, the law is that if you do the things that if you do the criminal act with with the intent to do the criminal act, you're guilty of the crime. But and that's the law. However, the jury has the power to deliver a not guilty verdict. So the language they use is very specific and very intentional. So jury nullification, it's, it's a, a verdict that's contrary to the law, but the mm -hmm. jury has the power to do it. And every judge, every court has said that ever since the United States began. And even in England, they, they have that too. But um, the jury can say not guilty. So in other words, if, somebody's guilt, if somebody possesses 10 pounds of marijuana and that's a crime in your state, if all the jurors think that should that's a bad law, they can all vote not guilty, and then that guy is acquitted and can never be put on trial again. And that's that's the that's what jury nullification basically is. The most common types of cases for jury nullification in the United States are um, firearm possession by an ineligible person. So some guy got a felony 20 years ago. He was a juvenile, did a burglary. Now he's 45 years old and he's got a gun in his bedroom you know, in a bad neighborhood, can't get a good job because he's got a, maybe he got the burglar when he was 22, he can't get a job, he's got a criminal record. He's got a gun, it's against the law, but the jurors, the jury, jurors are like, well, come on, he didn't, he didn't hurt anybody. He just possessed a gun. What's wrong with that? Yeah. that that's a bad law. That, that shouldn't be illegal. So not guilty. The other one is marijuana. So the two, two most common types of cases are marijuana and gun possession cases for jury nullification. 
Do you, so uh, for states that don't have like stand your ground clauses in their self defense laws, um, for example, Virginia is one of them. Uh, they require that you retreat as much as possible to the furthest point in the house, to the furthest corner before you fire to 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 wound or kill someone. I mean, I think in, in, even in the law, it requires that you try to wound them versus kill them. Uh, states like Tennessee, um, just being threatening on like not even like on your own property, like you can be out in public and someone come at someone with a bat, you can drop them without retreat or without saying a word. So, do you think? Do you see or have you ever seen a lot of jury nullification where the stand your ground laws don't exist but someone acted in self-defense of themselves or someone else and the jury's like yeah this is stupid they i mean obviously if they didn't act they would have died or someone else would have died you know i mean the, the idea of jury nullification is kind of like the ultimate example uh or the most pure form of jury power but jury power takes many forms so um Sometimes it's hard to say it was jury nullification unless it's abundantly clear and obvious that the guy was guilty, but the jury didn't give a, give a darn. Um, so, but in the cases of self-defense, you know, it's, to me, self-defense is the ultimate jury issue. So the, whatever the law says, who cares? You know, mm -hmm. the, the jury's going to look at the, all the facts and the totality of the circumstances, what the judges say. But um, they're going to look at all the facts and circumstances and decide, you know, what they think. But one thing I've noticed is when it comes to self-defense, people are really judgmental about other people, but not about themselves. You know, people think what they do, you know, their you know what doesn't stink, but everybody else's does. So that's kind of the story of self-defense. It's, it's a tough thing. I mean, it's, it's, it's best not to put yourself in that situation that the old, the old uh, saying that I, I, that we probably all heard that I really like is I'd rather be uh, judged, judged by, by 12 than carried by six. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think that's, that's very true because that's literally the only thing better than being judged by 12 is, or the only thing worse than being judged by 12 is being dead because it's not good to be judged by 12 because they're, they're really, they're very, uh, they're like a Greek chorus. They're very critical and they don't want to, you know, you know the truth, but they don't want to believe it. You know, they want to, they're, they want to convict. So um, you really have to make it clear to them that you had, that you were very, very reasonable, that you did not want to fight. You are a reluctant participant, um, that your use of force was absolutely necessary, that it was proportionate to, you know, somebody stepped on your toe, you didn't pull out a 45 and drill them three times, you know. Um, but somebody's, you know, threatening your life and you're yelling at them, get away, get away. You're backing up, you're backing up. And pretty soon, you know, they jump you and boom, boom, boom. I mean, that's, that's a better fact pattern than the, the stepping on the toe fact pattern. But yeah. so in Minnesota, you know, Minnesota, we don't have a stand your ground law, which is basically um, the absence of a duty to retreat. However, we do have we, we do have that in the home. So there's no duty to retreat inside of the home in Minnesota for self under our self-defense laws. They do vary from one state to another, as you indicated, but, um, you know, but even in Minnesota, regardless of the duty to retreat, the question is, was your use of force reasonable? That's really what it boils down to. So there's different, you know, ways of looking at it. Uh, was it proportionate? 
where you were elected participant, you know, um, were you in your house or not in Minnesota is super important. But um, if you're outside your house, if you're on your porch, you're screwed. You know, if you're in your house, you're much better off. But um, yeah, that is that is kind of an arbitrary standard. And like, I mean, you can still be on your property and be in violation of that law. But once you cross this uh, this imaginary boundary, which is a door, I mean, I guess it's not an imaginary boundary; it's a physical boundary. But um, once you cross that door, you know, it's a whole different set of rules. And I think I think a lot of states and I like I brag on Tennessee a lot, but I think they've kind of made as far as gun legislation and self-defense laws go, it makes the most sense. The way they structured castle doctrine is whatever they define as your castle, which is your home and your vehicle. So here's a crazy thing. You'll love this. So in Tennessee, it is 100 percent legal for me to carry a firearm in my truck, pick up my kid from school and drive off 100 percent legal. Because Tennessee defines my truck as a part of my castle because I spend time in it. It is property of mine. And I, you know, a lot of people spend large numbers of uh, hours of the day in their vehicle. So therefore it extends to it. So you don't actually even have to have a carry permit to have a firearm in your vehicle. And you can pick your kid up from school because if it's out of sight and not within reach of anyone immediate, it's totally legal. It's it was the coolest thing ever when I read in the, the legislation on that because there's almost like no states that have that clause written in there because of the way that they structured castle doctrine around vehicles. Yeah, I totally agree with you there. I mean, one interesting aspect of what we're talking about right now, if you have the castle doctrine or the lack of a duty to retreat it in the home, which is what that really, at least in Minnesota, what that means. Um, some states define that as the castle as, you know, like you say, the car even, but a lot of them talk about in Minnesota, they have a very a limited one. It has to be inside the building, inside the four walls, but it does not include what lawyers call the curtilage, which is the stuff like your yard, your porch, your garage, your property that you own or rent. Um, that's your curtilage, but the public can, you know, cut a, some kid can cut across your yard or something, you know, on his way to the, across the street or something. Um, or if you have a fence, that could be part of your curtilage too, fenced in yard, whatever. Um, your garage, in, unless it's an attached garage. Um, but so some states have the 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 cat the the, the, uh, the home self defense. You have greater rights of self defense in your own home, and they but they define your home as more than just your building, they include your your whole property, your curtilage. Other states include your car, like you said, which personally, I'm a big Second Amendment supporter. I'm all in favor of all of those, of the most, uh, the most favorable treatment for the individual rights as possible. So that's kind of what I personally favor, but um, it's, it's different all over with different states. Yeah, unfortunately, because as you know, and as I know, and a lot of people ever know, unfortunately, is uh, you're if, even if you're just traveling through another state, you're beholden to their gun laws. Even if you don't, even, even if you never step out of the vehicle, if you are transporting a firearm through that state and you get pulled over, you're beholden to whatever horseshit laws that they have. So I, you know, moving from Tennessee to Florida, I crossed through uh, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia. Uh, depending on which where I go, it may go through Alabama. It, there's a lot of different states with a lot of different laws, and you can end up in a bad spot real quick. And 
I think they designed the, some of these laws to be so arbitrary and so strange between different states so they can catch people just randomly not knowing what the hell the law is. Because, like I said, you are still, like, as a lot of judges will say, ignorance is not an excuse for breaking a law. It's your responsibility to know the law, but yet there's, what, 30, 40, 100-some thousand pages of legislation for most states? It's, it's impossible to know what's illegal and what's not. Right. I mean, I think that you could you could generalize that about gun laws in general and to some extent maybe self-defense laws as well but gun laws are crazy complex and um in minnesota i presented a lot of seminars to lawyers on minnesota gun laws and minnesota and federal um because most lawyers have a hard time un untangling it and sorting it out well if lawyers have a hard time what's the general public supposed to do so one thing I'm going to kind of circle back Saki to is uh, one thing you talked about was um, I can't remember specifically what it was, but the idea I guess that I had was um, that maybe, Oh, so I, this is the question I was going to ask you. So what do you think about making it easier for the individual to plead their own case in court? Oh, cause this is what it was. You had said that courts were intimidating to most people, which they are. If you've ever, if for anyone who's ever been in a criminal courtroom um like i have unfortunately it is a very large room it is very intimidating it's like it's it's a whole experience it sucks but um you know a lot of people don't represent themselves because of one the stats of people who represent themselves are not great um, my understanding from what i've heard from other attorneys and from people who have been inside the system have said that you know there is kind of this like backdoor kind of behind the the scenes game that's played with attorneys that they talk and talk and talk and if you represent yourself you lose that advantage and so what do you think like do you think it's more beneficial for the people to be able to represent themselves like if schools made it you know to where like they would teach them how you can go about being able to represent yourself and um do you think that that system should exist like where people it, it's made easier for people to represent themselves, I guess. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think in today's world, it's I, one way to capture the idea would be um, I've often observed and said that nobody hires lawyers more frequently than lawyers do. So like if a lawyer needs, if a lawyer has a family law case, for example, like a divorce case, well, gee, why don't you just represent yourself? You're a lawyer, after all. You don't need to pay out like 20 grand a month to some lawyer for you to fight about your kids with your ex. Um, well, guess who does it more than anybody? Lawyers do. They don't think twice about it because we know how valuable it is. I mean, it's not just the expertise. It's the value of having another human being vouch for you and say, hey, this guy... He's all right. Because if, if I say I'm all right, you're you're like, hmm, isn't this guy blowing his own horn? Isn't he just like bragging or boasting or whatever? Um, but if somebody else says it, even though you know they're this is this is the guy's paid lawyer. Of course he's saying that. But you know that, but it still works. It still works. So it's better to have a lawyer and Actually, like if you change it from lawyer and courtroom to like um, 
some people have labor unions and they have a labor union representative speak for on their behalf at some employer disciplinary hearing. That's really helpful. It's really helpful to have somebody speak for you. But I think also, though, I mean, I, I do a lot to try to educate, help my clients learn about the law. And I think the more you learn about the law, the better off you are. Just like if, yeah. in, a, in a way, it's like guns, you know, you could just yeah, you could just go rent a gun and, you know, point it at the target and pull the trigger and then probably go bang and you might be all right. But you know what? Wouldn't it be you'd probably be better off in a lot of ways if you learned how to field strip that baby and clean it and, you know, practice learning your your shooting skills and so on. I mean, it's just the more, you know, information is power. So legal information, gun information, you name it. So, yeah, but I still think, hell, if the courts were more friendly to pro se litigants or people with, who represented themselves without lawyers, uh, that might be a good, that's probably is, would be a good idea. On the other hand, would I, would I want a lawyer to represent me, even though I'm a lawyer? You're damn right. I would. So it's funny. You bring up the, uh, the child custody thing. I'm actually going through that myself and my attorney, he's an awesome dude. I love him to death. He's funny as shit. And, uh, I'm totally going to take that clip where you were saying, like, basically, attorneys are just hype men, and I'm a, I'm a send him a picture of Flavor Flav, and uh, it just, I'm, a, I'm gonna just explain to him that, you know, uh, apparently, attorneys are just really, really well educated Flavor Flav hype men. I don't know, I, I might miss that reference, but um, I think you know, it's we are trying to, we're, we're kind of, you know, sales people, you know, we're, we're communicators, we're persuaders. So, um, you know, you could be a, a salesperson, you could be selling cars, you know, and a lot of the skills that you have would help you as a lawyer. So Jesus, that's, that's weird. Did you say that? Cause, uh, so I'm in, I'm in the automotive industry. I actually work at, at a shop where, you know, I went from a service writer to a service and sales specialist. I'm now a service manager. Um, and I speak to people on a regular basis. I have to say, hey, look, if you don't do this, your car is going to break. And probably when you're doing 70 on the highway, which is a bad time for it to break. And so explaining really technical information um, about a really technical piece of equipment to someone who knows next to nothing about it is difficult. And explaining to them why they should spend a thousand something dollars to fix it is even more difficult. And I've actually, so I've spent a lot of time reading on firearm legislation for the simple fact that I, I had an FFL. I do, uh, I, I have done training courses on firearm ownership, where to start, where to go next, what the laws look like, why you should read on this legislation versus this legislation, blah, 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 blah. And one thing I've actually considered is going and taking uh, some like, uh, I guess it would be like paralegal courses just to like be able to to do more like the the legal side of things just for personal benefit because i as as i moved into this role where i'm now fighting for custody of my kids the first thing i did was like well i'm gonna go read a bunch of fucking legislation and once you get used to it in my opinion it it all it, it looks tantalizing and scary but at the end of the day it's all the same like if you can read firearm legislation from the atf which is a fucking holy shit I mean, anyone who ever has done that knows that that's just the most arbitrary pile of horseshit ever. If you can do that, I mean, it's easy to read, uh, you know, like the, the statutes on child support or versus 
uh, child custody or, you know, this demand for 50-50 split custody and all these other things that they write down, which are worded a lot more sane than firearm legislation is, as we talked about. So, yeah, dude, that's wild that you say that. Yeah, and then if to follow up on your statutory uh, reading, then you want to look at some cases where they cite those statutes. Go to Google Scholar, type in the statute number, and hit some cases that come up. It's a Wait, free, free legal search engine that Google has called Google Scholar. It's like Google Maps, except it's Google Scholar. And I think there's a they have two there's a button you push like technical or legal. And of course, I always hit the legal and then you can uh, type in whatever you want and find legal cases by the whatever court you want. You know, your state courts, probably like whatever state you're in. And then you can use keywords or you can use statute numbers and then they'll give you a bunch of cases. You can read them and go, oh, and then you can see how the judges interpret those statutes. Sometimes so, they're obvious. Sometimes it's surprising. So it'd be an easy way to find like what the judicial precedent on something is, like whether or not courts are approving or disapproving of things. Right. Exactly. That's it. That's awesome. And also they apply it to real life cases that came up. So, you know, it, it gets more clear what the hell it, what it means. You know, what does this really mean? Susie is apparently a communist. Uh, she's like, Tom is not a lawyer. He's our lawyer. Um, but he doesn't look, Susie. He doesn't he doesn't practice in Tennessee as of right now. He's in Minnesota. So chill out. That's true. So let me ask about that then. So what the hell is this? So this is one thing I've spoken out against, especially during the COVID era, where how stupid it was that doctors, you know, I'll save lives in Tennessee, but guess what? I can't save lives in North Carolina because I'm not certified. Why? So what's what's the whole deal with like like lawyers can practice in one state versus another. Like I get that, you know, they want you to be well-read and well-versed on that state's laws. But at the end of the day, there's so much freaking legislation that nobody's well-versed on all of it because there's so much of it. And that my understanding is that many attorneys have to go back and read through legislation because guess what? There's so freaking much of it. And it changes all the time. That's true. I mean, I think like speaking for myself, um, sometimes people ask me, hey, can you take a case in the neighboring state of Wisconsin, right? And I know lawyers who are licensed in both states, but I'm not one of them. And I don't really want to be because I've got plenty to do here. Like, why do I want to learn another set of laws when the one I have is perfectly fine and I've got plenty of cases here? But I think, you know, part of it goes back maybe to federalism, the idea that every state is a country, you know, it used to be. Now that's diminished to a great extent. We've become kind of a national government, which I think is a terrible thing. I would like to undo that if I could, but um, but we still have vestiges of that. You know that each state is actually a state, a country, a nation. So um, you know, if I'm a a lawyer in Canada, I can't practice in the United States or in Minnesota or Tennessee. You know, but I, I don't know. I think that's it. I mean, so what has happened in some states, there have been abuses uh, where this happens in a lot of occupations where somebody tries to limit access to the to the profession using occupational licensing as a as a gateway or a gatekeeping function to extort money or power out of people. And that happens in a lot. of. It, there's a group called the Institute for Justice, which is a libertarian uh, public interest law firm. Um, that fights those 
litigates a lot of uh, abuses of that nature or professional licensing abuses. But there have been states where um, they create, you know, very high barriers to entry into the, the like, I think Florida, I hate to name names, but I, I sort of remember Florida maybe once upon a time did that. Maybe because too many old lawyers wanted to go down to Florida and like screw around or something, but and when they weren't really up to it. But um, so you, you create a high barrier to entry. You're protecting your local people against those outsiders. You know, that's kind of the, the idea. So that's kind of, I think that's a bad thing when they do that, but it has been done. And I think one other thing that we've seen, too, is that uh, it makes it easy for them to prevent you from staying in the industry, too. I remember. Uh, back when you know the the covid era was going on still um doctors were losing their licenses because they were saying look we're not seeing this mass pandemic we're seeing really strong flu symptoms and we are treating it as such and doctors were losing their licenses over it um i've seen i've heard of stories where attorneys have lost their 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 licensing because they were like look we shouldn't be prosecuting these certain laws and those states were like oh if you're not going to if you're not going to, you know, play by our rules, we'll pull your license, which is absolute horseshit. Because then it forces you into their game that they want you to play. It removes you from being an individual. Because guess what? Guess who saves lives? Not, not that license. That license doesn't do shit. It's the individual who holds it. So one thing I've pushed for, and I'll see what you think about this. Once again, I'll, I'll bring automotive back into it. There is no requirement that you be licensed to work on a vehicle. There's not. That might sound scary when you know you're running a three thousand pound minivan down the highway at you know seventy miles an hour with three kids in the back, but there is no license requirement. There is, however, what's called the Automotive Standard of Excellence, and it is a as a that's like a decentralized organization that you can or you can choose to be a part of, or you don't have to be. I am ASE certified in, in many aspects. Some aspects I'm not, but they. When, when you get certified, you put the badge on, you can say, oh, look, I'm certified. Shops prom you know, promote you to get certified so they can have the banners and all that stuff. But there is no requirement. There, there's, there's no agency that will say, oh, well, you're not certified by ASE, so we're shutting the shop down. But yet, how many times do you, in a day do you hear of uh, you know, brakes failing because a mechanic did it wrong? Now, I know a lot of people that try to do it themselves because they think it's cheaper and then they screw it up and then end up wrapping their car around a tree because they put pads on backwards because the dude on YouTube told them. But I don't see why we couldn't, especially with like, you know, with uh, with attorneys, we couldn't move into that sort of a system because what it'll do is two things, in my opinion. It'll, it'll create more of a market because more people can be involved in the system. And number two, it may even drive down certain costs for, for certain uh, services such as you know, child support cases, because a lot of a lot of fathers out there who have been struggling to pay child support can't afford an attorney because guess what? They're losing all of their income to child support. And now it makes it easier for a, a lawyer that may not have to be certified can do some some work for them at a cheaper rate or a discounted rate, whatever it is. Um, to help them out. I don't know. I, I don't know like the whole back end of it like you would, but um I don't, I don't, I really don't see where people would lose if we got rid of the, the licensing. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I think uh, I would observe that in many professions, many professions try to essentially self-regulate. They try to set up voluntary associations that will discipline members of their occupation or profession. 
And to the extent that they're successful with that, then the, the, the public and the government, the community don't feel the need to intercede. On the other hand, when people get really alarmed and shocked and pissed off that some profession seems to be running amok, then there's this cry that the politicians should get involved and this should be regulated and we got to crack down on it and so on. And I think it reminds me uh, when I went to a criminal justice Institute seminar, three day seminar a few years ago, there was a Canadian cop talking because we have police and lawyers at these things. And uh, he was saying, you know, we really need to professionalize policing so that policing is a very professional uh, occupation. It's not just a trade, you know, it's a profession. So I was like, hmm, what does he mean by that? So I think what he means is, you know, um, less rough stuff, maybe more um, being nicer to the public or something like that. Um, but I think to the extent that um, the police are able to self-regulate. So if, if you have a city where the police um, are willing to harshly discipline their brothers and sisters, um, then people aren't going to step out and be cowboys on the street. On the other hand, in towns where they're not willing to do that, and then some, some horrible thing happens and it's on video, then the house, you know, then there's going to be some big problems. There's going to be the public may react in a bad, violent way and or the government may step in and overregulate your police department. And then the police may all quit like Minneapolis where I live. We had all those things happen recently. So now we have like half the police that, we're, that we should have and we have crime everywhere. We have carjacking, you name it, which means we gotta be, you know, you should be carrying a gun, I think, to protect yourself, but if you're, if you're legally able to do so. But, um, you know, this issue about self-regulation versus, um, some the government doing it. So personally, I think it's better if if groups can self-regulate and individuals can self-regulate and be disciplined and be ethical and moral. But if you because if you're not ethical and you're not moral and you're not disciplined, th somebody's going to come in and correct you from the outside. You know, and that's what happens. But um, in terms of uh, you know, with the legal profession. Some people have said, well, we should have paraprofessionals like the medical profession has. So you have different levels of expertise. So yeah, you've got your lawyer, but maybe there should be kind of this middle area paraprofessional legal person who's not mm -hmm. quite a lawyer, but they're still good enough to do various things that people need done. And then they could charge less money and people would have greater access to help. Like like turning uh, like a, turn a paralegal into like kind of what RNs are and uh, allow them to handle like traffic cases stuff like that stuff that you know maybe it's not quite a life or death thing um or like you know like like i would even hire a paralegal for like child custody or divorce stuff like you know where it's a lot of just filing paperwork and stuff like that i mean yeah that makes sense i mean i would i would definitely get on board with that i still think that like allowing the government to say who can and can't practice law is stupid because then then they get to say Oh well, we don't like what your attorney's doing. You're, they're no longer an attorney, but it's not that the, that happened a lot. But you know, with the legal profession, it's kind of—I mean, I'm in it, so it's I have a different point of view, maybe. But um, in Minnesota, at least, um, 
So we've got the three, you know, most people remember the three branches of government, the executive, the legislative, and the judicial. Um, so the executive at the federal level is the president and all of the bureaucracy below the president at the federal level, like the ATF would be one, uh, the Justice Department. And then um, at the state level, that would be your governor and then the all the state agencies under the governor. So the judicial branch in Minnesota is the Minnesota, it's uh, headed up by the Minnesota Supreme Court and they run it, you know, basically. But they're, you know, that's a smaller group of people. And there's, the, the, even though there's a lot of lawyers, it's way less than the population of the state. So um, it's kind of like a small town in some ways, the, the legal profession, you know, I would compare it to that. Um, because we kind of know each other, you know, we're here year after year. We go to all these meetings, we, we bump into each other in court, and um, we share ideas and, you know, uh, thoughts about these various things. We debate them. And, uh, you know, we're, we're lawyers, so we're like perfectly, uh, we almost can't stop us from trying to think, overthink these things, try to figure, figure out how to do it better. Um, but, you know, so to some extent, I don't know, I feel like the legal profession is, um, it's kind of, it's different than the rest of the government in some ways, because I mean, you know, if the people didn't want lawyers to be doing what we're doing, we wouldn't be doing it, you know, but I think there've been, if you go back to, uh, like the Romans and the Greeks, there were, there were lawyers, there were people who were advocates. So I don't know, apparently it's like a lot of things like a blacksmith or something or a gunsmith. You need one of those. Well, Tom, I really appreciate you coming on tonight, man. This is an awesome conversation. I love the hell out of this. It's uh, it's very insightful. So thank you. Well, thank you. But uh, man, I appreciate it. Um, I'm gonna wrap this thing up, and uh, yeah, I uh, appreciate you, and I hope you have a good night, man. All right, have a good one. Well, that was freaking awesome. Uh, we're definitely gonna have to find some more attorneys to bring on. That's uh, that was a lot of fun. Um, uh, like I, I, I wish we had more time. I'm have to bring him back on too to do some more like dives into like the backside of the legal system that nobody sees because I think there's a lot to it and it's just hard to cram all of this into one hour. Like you know, talk about weed legalization and weed laws and gun laws and all that. So yeah, we'll definitely have to look at bringing Tom back on for uh, for some more insight behind uh, behind the the veil of the uh, the judicial system. But one thing I did want to talk about before we hop off, go get you these shirts, man. They are amazing. I'm buying like one of each probably. I mean, look at that. Ban assault government. Who wouldn't want that? Hashtag Anarchy Lube. Look at that. That is, look, that is an amazing shirt. Life begins at possession. Ban exorcisms. What more do you want? But anyways, um, I try to leave on a good note. And uh, you know what? Buy a gun. Buy yourself two guns. You deserve it. You're an awesome person. You know, you've worked hard all year long. It's uh, September, I think. <laughs> what month is it? I don't know. Yeah, it's September 8th. Go buy you two guns. You've earned it this year. Buy yourself an early Christmas present. You. you do it. But all right. 
I love y'all. Y'all are amazing. Good night. Good liberty. And you know what? None of y'all are real libertarians. Peace.